Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, William Cordova. Cordova is featured in Beyond the Surface, collage, mixed media, and textile works from the collection at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The show is on view through May 14th. Cordova's work uses a range of media to address and remake historical narratives. His practice understands that present knowledge of history is always changing, and that artists are part of the process of revising our understandings of the past. He's had solo shows at the Baltimore Museum of Art, the Perez Art Museum Miami, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, and at LaxArt in Los Angeles. In 2019, he was included in the Havana Biennial. Previously, he was included in ennials at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, and in ennials in Prague, Venice, and New Orleans. New Orleans, of course, being Prospect. On the second segment, Walter Di Maria. But first, William Cordova, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Philip Gustin Now, showcasing a retrospective of the artist's 50-year career. See Gustin's shift from abstract expressionism to humanism as his art reflects social injustice and excavates the anxieties of personal conviction. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash philipgustin. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948-1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Uta Barth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. William Cordova, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's use the work in the Nasher collection, and it's on view now at the Nasher, as a way into some of the interests you've explored across your career. That work is titled Greatest Hits, para Michaela Bastidas, Tom Wilson, and Anna May Aquash. It's from 2008. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It features no fewer than 3,000 vinyl records. Peruvian gourds, a VHS tape, 
kind of broken records, pennies, a candle, all kinds of good stuff. It features kind of also a melding of ideas into visual poetry. And a lot of the things that are in a lot of your work are in this work. So let's start with music, referred to here, obviously, in the form of the records. What about music as a vessel for people and experience works for you? So many ways I can answer that. Because music is one of the, aside from drawing, has always been one of the earliest tools for coping for children. And I definitely gravitated toward, to it. Even after my child, I was entering my teenage years, I became more obsessed with both of them. But not as a participant, but more as a, an observer of music. And likewise, drawing. So researching it more so than anything else. So I could talk to you when I was 11 years old about everything from the Velvet Underground to the Beatles' White Album to Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, but I had never heard the music. It wasn't until I was probably in my early 20s until I started actually hearing those groups or music. Not Stevie Wonder. That was always around the house in the periphery. So music is it was that for me, and... It's interesting because we didn't play music at the, in the house when my parents were home. Only after, if, if, when they went to work, my sister would play. And yeah, just visions of childhood, going to uncles, aunts' houses, where music was played live all the time. Well, on weekends. More traditional music, festejo, song. Music was played there. Not so much, I would say, pop music or anything like that. And that's in Peru. Uh, later on in the U.S., then I started listening to the radio through my sister, records through my sister, and then I started researching. So um, I think it a, as an observer, you have a more way of reflecting sooner than, than later on what it is you're observing and consuming. So I was always critical in analyzing what, I was, what was out there in the, um, in the landscape. And those things also got subverted so that they would come out through drawings um, later on because I drew all the time, but I didn't use it thinking I wanted to be an artist or anything like that. It was just a coping tool as a child uh, well into my teenage years because of the amount of violence that I was around in Miami at the time. This is in the uh, 1980s during the, uh, the crack epidemic, cocaine cowboy uh, era. And so there was constantly a lot of violence in the neighborhood, in middle school, in high school. And in order for me not to shut down, I just ended up using some of the um, the creative tools that I was introduced to when I was in Peru, drawing and music. So they, they've always gone hand in hand for me. Do you still have any of those drawings from your high school years? I started drawing consistently when I was 12, and I stopped when I was 16. And I started making my own comic books out of filler paper and just stapled mm -hmm. them. And I would make them two or three of them each day, every day, wow. about six years. So there was over a thousand comic books that I had. In 1998, I took them all and threw them away. Nobody ever saw them because they weren't meant to be shared or, or read. They were just something I needed to do in order to deal with the anxiety and the stress. I did keep 24 of them. They're the last two years of work that I did. So I have 24 of them. Have you ever I, showed them? I have shown the covers to students 
more recently, within the last four years, I, I shared the covers, but not the content. And I talked about them and how I used them for coping while I was in middle school. So I'll, I'll, I'll share that with, if I, especially when I go back to my, um, my high school and talk to the students. But I also share that with, in colleges about early works. How do the students respond? It's always interesting because it's always different. Hmm. Some of them are dismissive. Other ones relate to it. Some even pull out their own comic books while I'm talking because I, I like to make presentations informal so that people share as if we're in a round table rather than me talk for an hour and then they respond. Sometimes people lose interest in or their um, not interest, but more like, I guess they get scared. <laughs> they, the anxiety builds up and after an hour, they don't want to ask. So, but it was always interesting. They had different ways of, of responding, of reacting to the comic books. I never bring them in, in person. They're just uh, scans that I made. I also added actual comic books that I still keep. I don't collect anymore, but I, I collected comic books when I was 11 years old. And I did that for five years. And I had all the titles that are now famous because they've made movies of them, like Spider-Man, <laughs> America, Iron Man and X-Men. But I was, I was a serious collector. And I would save up my, uh, my pennies and allowances and things like that and buy them. So I have a pretty um, large collection of, that are now in demand. So that's also a way to break the ice with students because they can relate to what they're seeing. But I was also interested in, without being conscious of it at the time, I was also interested in gravitating towards titles that reflected my own upbringing, my family background, like the X-Men Thunderbird, who's a superhero that's, I don't believe he's included in the films. It's a, considered the first Native American superhero in Marvel Comics, but he was killed off after the second issue in 1975. I believe it's because there was a huge event that occurred with uh, the shootout with Leonard Peltier of AIM, and uh, supposed shootout with Leonard Peltier and AIM, and FBI agents. So Thunderbird was killed off. I think that's the only superhero that they ever did that to, that it, it had, in a title that just started. They've killed off other superheroes, but they usually after years of them being uh, published. It certainly reflects a, a certain very specific American history that a, you know, a cultural killing off would follow, an actual killing would follow centuries of dispossession and massacre and killing. There's a certain through line in American history there. Listeners may remember that Jason Garcia was on the show back in August, and, and, and we talked about some of these these same narratives. You know, speaking actually, speaking of narratives, a guiding through line in your work is that you work with historical narratives, and you upturn them, and you revise them, and you play with them. Did, do you think your interest in historical, in, in addressing historical narrative in your work comes from your interest in comic books? No. The comic book is just a vehicle. It comes from family. Mm -hmm. Family in Peru, my mother, cousins, uncles, they were always interested in storytelling. We would wake up in the morning and our mother would tell us stories. My sisters would make up stories at night to put us to bed on the spot. So I have the ability today as an adult or even when I was younger to make a story up on the spot, beginning to end without stopping because of just being conditioned, being exposed to all this creativity. And I think 
human beings take that for granted, what they expose their children to. So I think it's had a really healthy dose of creative uh, individuals constantly informing and shaping. But I also think subconsciously, it was important for me as a person of color to write my own narrative. So I also, you, I mentioned earlier before we started about Polaroids, but I was also using 35 millimeter film. And later on, I was using VHS camera to videotape the house, the landscape of the house, interior, exterior, as if it were some PBS documentary about this old house or something. And I would do the same thing in undergrad at the School of the Early History of Chicago and later on at Yale University. And that all that documentation it was done because I felt that it was really necessary for me to create this narrative of who we are. So it wasn't all about me. It was actually all about the other students of color because we tended to be a minority in these programs. And so I've archived all of that material. A lot of people ask me, well, how did you know to document Kehinde Wiley or McLean Thomas or Leslie Hewitt or Sean Griffin? All these folks, they were our peers. We were, we were always just talking, working with each other, networking. And so I would videotape them in the studios or, or thereafter or their exhibits, things like that. All that comes from the desire to create a repository of our presence. Growing up in Peru in the 70s was extremely different than Peru afterwards and before the 70s because there was a revolution that occurred where the government really pushed a lot of, I guess in the USA would say, like public television programming. So it was like multicultural diversity being constantly presented in radio and literature and on TV. We didn't have a TV set, but we would see them where we would go to my aunt's house. But I was definitely exposed to it on radio and newspapers and books. So that, that shaped my worldview, shaped the direction I would be going later on. These things resurface. They're like seeds planted. And the right climate has to occur in order for them to sprout. And that happens, I think, naturally for all human beings. It just all depends how we direct that activation. Going back to greatest hits for a moment, it's, you know, it's a work that extends, you know, 15, 18, something like that feet into the, you know, 15, 18 feet tall. One of, one of the ideas embedded in that work is an address of Brancusi's Endless Column, which is an interest, uh, a focus that's recurred in a lot of your work. You played a lot with forms that are, I don't know, for lack of a better word, you know, a tower something that just kind of keeps going up, up, up until it hits, you know, the end of a wall or a ceiling or whatever. Why is that a form that interests you? Well, I'm always thinking about infinity and improvisation. I was thinking more of, it's the same way that when people see Picasso's work, his early or later work, they don't think of Congolese art. They just think the origins is Picasso, whereas he was riffing Congolese art. Or, or faux Congolese art that he was buying. So in the reference to Brancusi, it's what it's more what Brancusi was referring or mm. reference. So I was thinking of Native American totems. I was thinking of Maasai swords, Andean sculpture, architecture, antennas. That's what a lot of these objects are. They're antennas, like feathers. And that's why I also incorporate a lot of feathers in my work. I they're they're on my list. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. There's even there's even a, a work with a feather that referenced Brancusi's Bird in Space, which is your untitled Bird in Space for Charlie Parker and Jose Campos Torres from 2010-11. Yeah, that's le- less of a reference to Brancusi, more of a reference to a Charlie Parker bootleg, Bird in Space. Yeah, yeah but it's all there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a wink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's those links that are, to me, are really essential because... Everyone can relate to a constellation, and constellations are made up of links, celestial links. We all look up, and that's a way of reflecting on the past, because those those points aren't there anymore. We're, what we're looking at is a is a ghost image. So what I'm making are ghost monuments. They're very ephemeral. They can be assembled and disassembled fairly quickly. They can be recreated in a different landscape or geographic location in this planet with similar material. And that's a reflection of not necessarily being nomadic, but of being resourceful and practical. One of my favorite things about your oeuvre is the way things recur over and over again, often over very many years. You mentioned feathers. One I wanted to talk, I had on my list to talk about was speakers or boom boxes. You've you've used speakers in some works, boom boxes in others, but they're, you know, they're kissing cousins. Why speakers and boom boxes? I mean, it's obviously or not obviously, but it's it's likely related to your interest in music, of course, but speakers and boom boxes have a different materiality and indeed maybe even a different cultural reference than a record does. Yeah, there are different types of vessels for me, whereas the speakers are which come the influence for that for incorporating those materials come from from childhood of seeing Andean pyramids architecture, but also the Afro-Peruvian cajon, the drum, which is based off of a fruit crate because Andean and Afro-Peruvians could not use any reference or speak their own languages. They had to adapt. And so they had to be creative in the way that they would um, go about practicing any any ritual. And so that's how the Afro-Peruvian cajon evolved. It was originally just a, a fruit crate that was being used. So you sit on top and use it as a drum. As a child coming into the U.S. and not knowing or being familiar with anything, children try to make sense of things by relating visuals to things that come from their past. So I constantly would see speakers being tossed out, wooden speakers outside people's homes. And the centers usually is where the, uh, the actual speaker is. Oftentimes they would take them out and reuse them for something else. And so they were hollow. So I would ask my father, why is it that they're throwing away all these, these drums? And he would just laugh and he wouldn't respond. So his silence to me was kind of a, a poetic way of saying, it's up to you to, to figure that out. He just didn't want to answer because he didn't think it was something relevant. So, but I interpreted it differently. So my imagination was constantly going. And later on, I decided to construct certain sculptures that, that use uh, reclaimed speakers from South Florida. It took about a year to, to collect many of them. And, and I wanted to make a monument that reflected both Andean and African presence in, in Latin America by recreating a specific Andean structure with images that looked like Afro-Peruvian drums. And it's something that could also easily be dis- disassembled and reassembled anywhere. The boombox is, that's more like a sword for the generation that I come from. 
it's a shield. It's a warding away tool. And we used boom boxes to challenge each other whose boom box was higher than the other, who had more bass, but also what recordings you were playing, which one was better. And so a lot of young people do that with cars later on, but in the early 80s, there were, there were boom boxes and people would walk around with them. And, but it's also a shield. It, it protects you in a way. You would turn up the volume and it creates this, this sonic space that um, defines who you are, becomes your soundtrack. I think young kids in middle America were doing that with like roadsters and hot rods. Yeah, hot rods. Uh, George Lucas definitely was doing that in his teenage years until he got into a car accident. But um, we were doing that with boom boxes. So they were merely vilified. I kept mine, didn't walk around with it. I kept mine in the closet and I still have mine. Is, mm-hmm. is, is that, that boom box you had the foundation of the boom box you use or, or riff on in pieces like Kumanana, which is for Nicomedes, Santa Cruz, Nicola Guillen, and Alana Lockward? Am I the same boom box is the container, I guess you can call it? in which Polaroids, prints, and some other material from your print series on the lower frequencies, I Speak For You, is held? Right. Is that, yeah. is that, is that all from that boombox you had as a kid? Yeah, that's a, that's a second. You're talking about the sculpture piece that's yeah, the, made out of cement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then also, but it's the same representation of a, of a boombox in, in you know, both those pieces. You know, the, 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 the original source is the same boombox right. and so yeah is that the boombox that that you had that you still have in a closet <laughs> yes yeah ah. it was somewhat um complicated to make a mold out of, out of it without damaging it but it was <laughs> i bet same process yeah yeah they weren't made for that <laughs> no no i had to cover it with uh with plastic and then we had to make make an impression of that and then then and then make a mold so i was thinking about that much much earlier when I was in grad school. So I, I started making them out of aluminum foil, molds out of aluminum foil. Uh, and, then, and then those became the actual piece. And I would put them in plexiglass cases uh, to protect them. Yeah, it was just uh, the titles also open up the pieces. Oh, we're going to talk about the titles in a minute. Sure. But um, one more thing on boom boxes before we move on. When I started looking at your work again in preparation to talk with you, I noticed that well, I thought that it might be that the boomboxes that were surfacing in your work were the same as the boombox carried by Radio Rahim in Do the Right Thing. No. Um, and it's no, close, that, that's but it's good. not. Yeah. Those look really well, but they're not very strong. I forgot the name of the that boombox. But but you're close in associating. You, you are anticipating the, my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the pop culture imagery, especially early hip hop, like LL Cool J's first album or photographs of LL LL, or a lot of hip hop artists at the time, early eighties, that they would be holding a boombox, various size boomboxes. Later on, when we see the film, um, Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, Radio Rahim is holding this boombox. That's later, that's like on the way out of the 1980s. Those were, those didn't, did not generate Hmm. great, um, amplification so some of the earlier ones did but then they started making cheaper ones after 1985 
So the Lasonic boombox that I have, the 931 Lasonic, that was the first boombox that was really made, directed towards rap music, to the hip hop generation. And so it's not the best boombox either. So I have to take care of it. So it looks glamorous, but it's not. I would say some of the this, this Sony 777, is that one is really powerful. And I have one of those that I got later on. But yeah, like the one that John Cusack used in Say Anything in 1989. Oh, I forgot about that. Right. So it's interesting to see that. Whereas I have um, news clippings, video clippings and things like that, or, or literature dismissing um, boomboxes, or they call them quote unquote ghetto blasters. Yeah. Affiliating crime with boomboxes, black and brown bodies. So they were vilifying and lumping them all together. But then 1989, when John Cusack used the boombox, a small boombox, and the film say anything to serenade this young woman, he didn't play hip hop. He played uh, Peter Gabriel and Yusu Endures in your eyes, which is nice. But I saw it as Pat Boone doing a Tutti Frutti on Ruby. <laughs> um, it didn't have any salsa in it, no spice. <laughs> um, but then that became the I- iconic image. His only salvation is that in the movie, he was more into the clash. He was punk, which is, uh, I would say, is in conversation with, with early rap, with hip hop. Yeah. I, I've been doing this show for 11-something years now, and this is the first time an artist has referenced John Cusack or Pat Boone, and we got him in one answer. So that's pretty good. <laughs> I would I would be remiss if I didn't note, as we're talking about the cultural and other power within boomboxes, if I didn't talk about how about eight years ago, you kind of did um, an adult one-upping of the boombox and the piece you made for, I guess it was the first prospect, a, a work in which you had a band, Soul Rebels, uh, which is a New Orleans brass band, stare down and play at what was then New Orleans's Robert E. Lee monument. Why use a boombox if you can get yourself a whole New Orleans brass band, right? <laughs> well, it was actually a collaboration with with the, the Soul Rebels band and Monique Moss, who was yep. a choreographer, dancer, in New Orleans, this goes back to a conversation we had in 2006 at the Headlands Residency. And in 2009, I was in a residency in New Orleans. So Monique and I were talking about the presence of these monuments, these Southern Confederate monuments, and the normalization of what they represent to the Black community as opposed to the white community, where it's, it's just two completely different perspectives. And we wanted to do something to respond to that. So we talked to uh, the Soul Rebels, who are, like you said, a a local brass band. And all of us just thought, why don't we try to to respond with it through music? So by doing a face-off with Robert and Lee statue in Lee Circle, we broke into this um, building, which used to be a residency when I was there in 2009. We didn't get to do this until 2014. We tried to do it many times before, but Uh, it was very difficult for everyone to be at the same place. It was a labor of love. It was a beautiful project. We broke in. We had a car waiting for us outside. We had cameras all around the other buildings. And um, 
an audio recorder. All in all, it was about 28 minutes in and out. But that's not really like a boombox because the boombox was used with your peers. It was a friendly exchange. And there was, this was more of a standoff, a declaration, because we were facing an individual who represents oppression. And also the community had been pushing to take these monuments down for decades. So we thought, if we do this action, it'll politicize whatever music we're playing. It doesn't matter what it is, because if, if the, um, the way we're going to document it in its, and in the association with the statue. And so we did that, that piece fairly quick. Monique Walton, a uh, peer friend of mine, who's a filmmaker and producer, she was also collaborating with us in videotaping the uh, performance. It just so happens that I was approached by Prospect to participate in the, the triennial. But we were already doing that, this project. There is a, I don't know if trailer is the right word, but there's kind of a two and a half minute video trailer of the piece that we will include on the show page at manpodcast.com. We started talking about feathers a moment ago, and then I kind of led us down another path. Feathers are, are one of those things that recur a lot in your work. We were talking about burdened space. There's also one of my absolute favorite Cordovas, a work called Untitled Geronimo, which features a feather. Well, what, what's visible to the viewer immediately anyway is a feather in a paper bag, and there's also a brick within the paper bag. And, and then there are feathers. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com, but there, there are feathers that go across that are bound or, or tied together and then run across the top of the paper bag. This is all a bad description and a long way of asking, do feathers mean any one thing for you or are they a broadly useful, broadly adaptable reference? They mean different things to me, mm. but not completely different. There are symbolic tools that have very specific functions for me. It's in a way, it's like an index that I use as a source. And they're activated differently depending how I'm using them. But they always have a, a meaning that I'm not injecting into them that they come with already. So they're, they're informed by different cultures that are interrelated to my own origins, to my own roots. I don't deviate from that. So I'm not going to take a, a feather and put it in a blender and then put it in the freezer and make a sculpture piece. That's... That would be inappropriate. So it has to relate to the way that they're actually originally functioned. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense to you. It makes perfect sense. And it's also a more complicated, historically more complicated use than assigning feathers a semiotic meaning within your oeuvre, right? There's a lot of layers, a lot of entry points to them, a lot of ways that relate to the constellation that I was creating and talking about. Because their sources could be in different parts of the world. There are sources and meanings, mythological meanings, biological meanings. And that's why I also incorporate a lot of geometry and fractals because of the biological meanings and a lot of the symbols that I use. There was something you mentioned before, not something you mentioned, you asked me about the Soul Rebels documentary that we did. Um, I should add that that was influenced by uh, the A. Penny Baker film, PM, a uh, documentary that uh, Jean-Luc Godard abandoned in 68 and that um, Penny Baker later finished. And 
it shows the rock group, the Jefferson Airplane, performing on a rooftop in New York City. And this, the lead singer gets arrested. It's an impromptu concert. And then there's also the, uh, the Beatles rooftop concert at the end of Let It Be film in 1970, uh, where they performed the la- for the last time a concert. And thirdly, for me, is very important, is uh, the film Right On. That, was, that came out in 71 with The Last Poets, the original Last Poets, performing on a rooftop. And that was also filmed by D.A. Pennybaker. But it was it was a Herbert Danska film. That film was lost until 2013, with the original negatives were supposedly found and um, recovered. But um, I was interested in all three films because it's about disrupting, disrupting the status quo, disrupting the landscape, making things pause to reflect on the times, the climate, uh, the rooftop, the um, vertical structure, uh, the antenna. Those are the relationships that I was making. A centering of youth within that disruption also. Correct. Well, I have two more references that pop up in your work a lot that I wanted to touch on before moving on to something else. And, and those are gold leaf, which you use in lots of works on paper and gourds. Gold leaves are, it's about alchemy in general, transformation, transcendence. Gourds are vessels. They're storytellers shaped as a, a, a vegetable, a fruit, a gourd is, is, a, is a vessel that comes in different shapes and sizes and uh, is used all over the world for different reasons uh, to carry water, carry food, store matter in, to eat. So it has a lot of different purposes and uh, functions. But um, Andeans traditionally etched on them abstractions and geometric shapes, but also folkloric stories that not using the uh, writing, it's all oral tradition. We would um, repeat the, the story from one person to the other, to the other, to the other. And that's how things get passed on. So memory becomes a really important, integral part of this ritual. And memory is a huge, important role in, in, my, in my work in general. Yeah, I had, I had fun thinking about how you and Larry Pittman are two artists who could not be more different, but you have both used gourds often as carriers of ideas and histories and to point to how ideas and histories are constructs and that they are not ossified and that meanings change over time. Yeah, these are early, very symbolic materials from childhood. Also backstories as to how they function, because a lot of them are created for and directed towards tourists. And the folkloric tales on them are generic because they're, they're, you know, they're directed for to, to tourists coming in and just um, buying them up. So there's two different types of gourds, one for tourists and one others that are a lot more elaborate and sophisticated and more coded. So I, I'm always interested in that, how that functions. How it's incorporated in Greatest Hits, that's an actual etched gourd. I don't use or incorporate those anymore. I incorporate just um, blank boards. There's a work, and I can't remember the title of it, where you have uh, constructed a table-like form out of board. There are C-clamps on the board, and there are there's one gourd at either end. 
perilously or am I using the right word? Perilously, you know, barely balanced on the edge of the table. There there were just two of them, Canis Major and Canis Minor. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Those Um, are based on two constellations that are known throughout the world, as well as Andean and Andean culture. So I was uh, opening it up so people would read the title and remember when they first saw Canis Major and Canis Minor or their relationship to that, or even the title. Those constellations have different names depending where you're from. So I wanted to create a a piece that disrupted the space of the uh, exhibition place. And, but there was also creating um, familiar entry points to people from different backgrounds. Yeah, I, I like I, the the way that in, in I think it's Canis Minor the gourds balance on the end of the table remind me of precarity and the precarity of cultural memory or historical knowledge and you know I, yeah I just really like that piece. Um, <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was trying to say allude to the elders holding up the piece, so they're they're ghosts holding up the piece so that it won't fall over. I want to wrap up by talking about what might be my favorite Cordova, maybe. And it is a work that exists in at least two versions, one of which you showed and I think debuted in 2008 at Art Pace in San Antonio, titled Moby Dick, Tracy, after Ishmael, Chico Decano, and Carl Hampton, a piece that I think you made with Carlos Sandoval de Leon and Mark Aguilar. And then another version is titled Moby Dick for Oscar Wilde, Oscar Romero, E. Oscar Grant. It is a work in which you address and challenge and interrogate the construction of whiteness. You know, it obviously refers to Moby Dick, Melville's great white sperm whale. Melville creates Moby Dick as, of course, a metaphor, perhaps the most famous metaphor in American literature, and it is a metaphor for whiteness. So in your works, which feature a a sawed-off white Caprice classic cop car, you layer a construction on top of a construction, a metaphor kind of on top of a metaphor, which is super effective. What about updating a a then 170-year-old metaphor was attractive to you, building mutability upon mutability? (laughs) First, the, uh, the first version that you mentioned that one existed at Art Pace in San Antonio. And and then that piece concluded at um, Art Pace in San Antonio. The following piece, Moby Dick for Oscar Romero, Oscar Wilde, and Oscar Grant, that's the piece that exists independent of the first one. Right, and that's, right, that's, right. That, that, is, that has no collaboration. Ah, um, okay, all right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's a different piece. It just looks the same, almost the same. But... Um, for me, the piece Moby Dick, my entry point, was focusing on totalitarianism and reading um, not only the book by Herman Melville, but also Toni Morrison's uh, Playing in the Dark and um, yeah. Cornel West's uh, Democracy Matters and their interpretations, which differ. So that that started my thinking about the piece as well as writing uh, Gypsy Cabs in Harlem while I was in the Studio Museum in Harlem residency in 2004 and five, Because a lot of the people that I would meet driving the Gypsy Cabs were people who had, who'd had careers elsewhere outside of the country, but because they couldn't get 
proper paperwork, they weren't able to pursue their, their careers. And um, all the vehicles ended up being the same Crown Victoria. But then the police also have Crown Victorias and taxi drivers have Crown Victorias. So they're very symbolic vehicle or vessel. And I wanted to address who's doing the, the guiding, who's, who's in charge, the, the front or the back. And all these themes of the economy of the, of the material of the, the vehicle came to mind. And I wanted to create something that, was, that would transform that vehicle when used by the police and what the police represents in a lot of communities of color or working class communities and do something constructive with it. Not to generalize the police in, in the country, but to respond to the symbol that can often provoke fear fear of one's life. I certainly felt like that in growing up in, in Peru and Miami. So, uh, so the, in, the interior of the vehicle is just as important as the exterior because the interior, which is not really often shown, it's not for public viewing unless you look through the windows, is a, it's a library made of books uh, or filled with books that have been censored, whose writers were executed, or biographies or histories of um, moments in time of struggle of independence or independence. So the exterior of the vehicle has a lot of aerosol art and that aerosol art is uh, interpretations of names that are in the books. So if it's Dennis Banks, you might see Banks. If it's Lapu Lapu, uh, it'll be just that. Uh, Geronimo is also on the surface of the vehicle. Bell hooks. Right, bell hooks, uh, cleaver, beacle, Tupac. And so whatever you see on the surface, it's, it's inside in the, in the library. And it's also a, a self, self-contained ad, habitable space. So there's batteries inside the vehicle, and one can educate and inform themselves from inside while the vehicle from the outside looks like it's been um, abandoned because a lot of the information is more about mar- marginalized histories and individuals. I often change the titles of, of works that I do. It's in a way of evolving. It doesn't always directly reflect what's going on. I prefer to use history to reflect what's going on rather than using something contemporary immediately. The exception with um, Oscar Grant, but the title hasn't changed since. I adapted the Oscar Grant reference. So th- this version will be shown in Baltimore at the Baltimore Museum next uh, April. In the Moby Dick works, as in a lot of other works, you include a series of names in parentheses after the title or, or you know, in some cases, untitled. And, and, you know, it's always for Oscar Wilde, Oscar Romero, Oscar Grant, you know, for person A, person B, person C, person, you know, whatever. When did you begin that practice and why is it important to you to have continued it? Because I'm always thinking parallel dimensions uh, since childhood. Uh, A practical way of explaining it is I would read four comic books at the same time because I only had five days to read them. In Peru, I would have to give them back to the neighbor. So I have to read them all at the same time. And so then I started reading books that way. Then I started writing that way. And so when I make visual work, I'm not thinking visually as much as I'm thinking more as a mathematically and 
and in in prose. So there, one is not is never enough. There's always these uh, other narratives that are going on in there, and they need to be illuminated. So, so I'm always including that in there. And part of the reason why I always change titles. I like that. That's very cool. William Cordova, thank you very much. Thank you, Tyler. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Matthew Ronay, The Crack, The Swell, An Earth, An Ode, an exhibition that transports you into a surreal world. Brooklyn-based artist Matthew Ronay combines vivid wood sculptures, poetry, biology, and nature into an otherworldly experience. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Michelle White returns to the program to discuss Walter DiMaria Boxes for Meaningless Work, a survey of DiMaria's career drawn mostly from the Menil Collection's outstanding DiMaria collection. The exhibition is on view in Houston through April 23rd. Michelle White, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Michelle, pray tell, what is meaningless work? Oh, what is meaningless work? That's really the question that drives this entire exhibition on Walter DiMaria. The the term comes from a manifesto of sorts that the artist wrote in 1960, where he set forth what he believed to be the new sort of frontier in terms of this sort of expanded conceptual terrain that was the 1960s and used the the term meaningless to describe it. Essentially, he applied that term to a group of early, primarily plywood box constructions that were participatory, that involved boxes and balls and objects that asked the audience to engage with various activities and meaningless activities, which for the artist was an approach to action and movement and participation that did not yield anything productive or no results. So the the title of the show is this very specific work called Boxes for Meaningless Work, and it's two large wood boxes with the instructions written directly on the box. And the instructions say, throw all of the things into one box, then throw all of the things into the other, back and forth, back and forth, do this as long as you like. And then he asks, what do you feel, yourself, the box, the things? Remember, this doesn't mean anything. So, his whole understanding of the term was so critical to what has really become the focus of the show is, is this group of work from the 19, early 1960s, 60 to 65, where this idea of meaningless is really illustrated by these, these works that invite you to engage in, in the meaninglessness of, of what he was proposing. 1960 and 61 are are early for what I think he's doing here. When I hear you talk and, and, and look at the things that are in this show, I can see some fluxus. I can see some data. I can see pre-minimalist sculpture. Is 
DeMaria engaged with any of that? Is that where he thinks he's coming from? <laughs> well, it's hard to know what where he thinks he's coming from. He was an artist that did not engage with a lot of interviews. So we don't often have a lot of his sort of direct descriptions of the work. But certainly all of those things apply to this work. And all of these things, from minimalism to, to fluxes, to what becomes land art, he's serving as like an incredibly important position in these evolving ways of thinking about art. And this exhibition, which is for the most part entirely pulled from the Manil's collection, has this group of early work that's never been shown before. So about 50% of the entire exhibition has, has either never been shown or only shown in the artist's exhibitions in the 1960s. And within this group of work, like Boxes for Meaningless Work, they really kind of open up a lot of new understandings of his work and his work to come. And one of those areas is how he very early on thought so differently about the audience and really giving agency to the viewer at a really early time. I mean, this is, if we think about 1960s, 60, this is right just after Alan Capro is thinking about kind of expanded practices and the idea of action and performance. Yoko Ono doesn't go on to do cut piece right until 1964. So he's really with these pieces we can see how he is at the forefront of these developing conversations around participation and engagement. I think you write in the guide to the show that Di Maria is mindfully activating space and artworks in, in this work from the early to the mid-60s. You kindly described for us boxes for meaningless work. What are some of the other ways in which Di Maria is if you will, using the viewer to activate space in his artworks. There's so many examples. And just to name a few, there's a work, a, a box that sits with a, a sign, which is a painting on a canvas that says, walk around the box. So they're pretty simple. Move one box on top of another box. In one work, which is two uh, small plaques, on canvas that are installed at either side of the room. One says, walk to sign A, and the other says, walk to sign B. So like, it essentially gets you as the audience moving back and forth across the, the space to see and experience the work. And that's what happens in a really interesting way. The, the boxes which require participation, which require, as he conceived it, the audience to touch and hold and move and and manipulate these works turns really quickly as the decade progresses into more expansive experiential works that engage more dynamically with the architecture and with the the audience's moving body one more thing before we we get to some of that work you mentioned that Walk Around the Box is from 1961. 1961 is the same year in which Robert Morris makes Box with the Sound of Its Own Making. Is Di Maria part of a, this is going to sound sillier than I mean it to, is, is Di Maria part of a New York cohort that is 
interested in what you can do with a simple wooden box? <laughs> yes, I mean, there's so many instances that we can uh, talk about in art history about the box in the 1960s. And there was even an exhibition that Di Maria participated in, and he made a box, which is in the show, with a graphite in inscription on it that says, in this box contains the soul of a young man's heart, which is so beautiful. But yes, I mean, Di Maria was close to, to Morris. They were at Berkeley together. This is from 60 to 61 is when both Morris and Di Maria moved from Berkeley to New York City. I'm sure we can sit here and think of a whole list of boxes by artists from this time. But, but yes, it's certainly in, in the air. And we can also think about primary structures, the exhibition at the Jewish Museum in 1963 that almost sort of for the first time gives us what becomes minimalism and the terms to articulate and describe what's going on. And one of the pieces in that exhibition is in our show and it's portrait of John Cage. That piece was included in the 1963 show and it's a portrait of John Cage, essentially a tall, narrow cage. So caging nothing as an elongated box form a cubist pun for a, a period in a group of artists that are fleeing from the rectangle. You know, kind of while we're in this moment of body-sized participatoriness, a phrase I will deny ever having used, Di Maria makes a, a work called Calendar. It is both time-based and it marries the time-based to the experiential in a way that he will build on enormously in some famous works to come. What does calendar do, if you will, and how long does it take to do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he develops a piece called Calendar in, in 1961, and essentially it's two slats of wood, almost sort of think of, of like the hands of a clock, and each piece of wood is connected by a chain, a chain with exactly 365 links, so every day, as the year progresses, you release one chain. So the arm starts to, to open up and expand throughout the year until, and as we are at the, the mid-December, as we're talking today, uh, the arm is about to, to hit the wall. And then January 1st, it pops back up. And for the artist, this is such a key work because it also anticipates his work to come in the land, his earth art to come, because he's thinking so expansively that he's thinking about the ideas of how to represent the invisible, how to represent something that can't be seen, like the span of a year. And it's quite profound in an incredibly startling simple work like Calendar with just two pieces of wood. There are within the show, a number of places that I'm tempted to think mark Di Maria's transition into his mature work, the kind of experiential, time-based, large format, large-scale things, such as Lightning Field and Earthroom. Calendar is certainly one of those. Are there one or two specific works that you think show us, tell us that Di Maria is, is making a pivot out of you know, a 400 square foot studio and into much larger spaces? 
It's a really great question. And what we are trying to set up in this exhibition as well is that he was thinking quite expansively long before he went out to the desert. For example, we have sketches in the show of works he conceived for large outdoor spaces in the land as early as 1960. Which was staggering. I saw that in the checklist and I was like, wow, 60. Like, that's that's way early. Really early. It's not until 1968 when the artist executes what he called his first earthwork that's mile-long drawing that he completed in the Mojave Desert which is represented in the show through a photograph of the artist lying in, in the space, on the lines, so to speak. And what is so important about that piece is that it also sort of allows us to see the directions he's, he's going, but also connect it to his past work, those small boxes, this idea of attempting to capture something that can't be seen, capturing invisibility itself, and with that work, he, you know, it's all about if you were standing there, it's a work that's impossible to see all at once. The lines extend too far into the distance. And we can start seeing that then in his early work, right? This walk from sign A to B from the early 1960s, as the viewer, you're unable to see the work in its entirety because in order to see it, you're either facing one side or facing the other. And it becomes you know, a way for us in this show to to look back and see how pivotal these early pieces were. There's a 1966 work called The Land Piece in the exhibition. It's tiny. Does it point in directions? So it certainly does. It's a small wood piece with essentially like a valley carved or sort of cut into the piece of wood. We're presenting it alongside those early drawings from the 1960s where he's thinking about the space of the desert, thinking about these long corridors that you could walk through. So he's thinking about these viewer experiences that are quite massive and elongated in space itself. And it's it's a, a peculiar work. It's almost like a model or diagram, but certainly does represent where he's about to go in the late 1960s. The other work in the show that clearly points to where DeMarie is going is a 1968 painting called The Statement Series, Yellow Painting, The Color Men Choose When They Attack the Earth. As you note in your materials for the show, it's the color of a caterpillar tractor or a caterpillar-like tractor. Right. It's it's the hue of commercial earth-moving equipment. So, yeah, like Caterpillar, right? This, this very specific hue of yellow. And this is a piece that the artist made for the 1968 exhibition at Virginia Duong Gallery in New York that really gave the title, you know, Earth Art within parlance and art history. And... It's such a beautiful, it's a long expanse of canvas covered in this yellow hue with a small plaque in the middle. And inside the plaque, it reads, the color men choose when they attack the earth. And it's certainly an illustrative line. It makes you think of this idea of excavating the earth as a type of artistic gesture. And 
it is, has such an important history within the formation of land art, not only because it was in the show, but it also has this very cool history that when the exhibition opened, Di Maria was in Munich completing the Earth Room for the first time with Heiner Friedrich. And so he called his friend Michael Heiser, and it was Heiser who painted the yellow canvas for the exhibition. Indeed, Di Maria didn't see it before the exhibition. Do, do we think it was Heiser who also took photo of Maya Long drawing? I mean, I think we don't know for sure, but do we think it was Heiser? Some scholars do think it was Heiser. It just hasn't been verified. But we do know they were out in the desert together at the time. Imagine that, Michael Heiser in the desert. I want to wrap up by talking about drawings. The last gallery, especially of the show, features a lot of drawings. Why was drawing so important to Di Maria? Or, or maybe maybe more than why, how was drawing so important to Di Maria? So there's almost two sides to his drawing practice that are represented in this show. The first is that he used drawing as a way of, like so many artists, a way of understanding his own growing philosophy about art and how it would work. So it's a lot of notations. It's a lot of casual sketches. And this aspect of his practice has truly never been seen. When the artist died, we worked with the estate and acquired about 600 drawings for the collection. Again, only a small fragment are on view, but certainly at the Manil, we're very proud to have this corpus here and open to scholars because there's so much to learn and understand about the artist's work from, from these materials. And then secondly, which is also represented in this show, is a group of drawings he started to develop in the 1960s called the Invisible Drawings. And he started making drawings that he described as essentially being on the threshold of visibility. And when you encounter an invisible drawing, because certainly it's virtually impossible to reproduce these works, they're very hard to see. For the artist, he essentially wanted you as the viewer to question your own perception, right? He even called them like a type of mirage because he used the slightest amount of pressure on the drawing utensil. So you have to get very close to see his marks on the paper support. And I wanted to end the exhibition with examples of the invisible drawings, as well as works that relate to the lightning field, which is considered Di Maria's most important work. It's the large earth art he executed in the, in the desert of New Mexico in the late 1970s that consists of 400 stainless steel poles. And I think for me, in my first encounter going out to the lightning field, which is just one of those great epic art experiences that you have to experience in person, for me, I was most startled by the fact that the entire work disappears depending on the position of the sun. And indeed, just like those invisible drawings, you know, you're questioning what you're seeing, that the, the earth work, this monumental piece in the land is operating just like these small unassuming drawings with the faintest of mark in the gallery space. You're sort of questioning what you're seeing. You're doubting your senses. And he once again draws such an incredibly important and early understanding of the agency of the viewer in the shaping of art's meaning. Michelle White, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Tyler. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.